please take a seat. If you rise since the start, please may I add my welcomes to Callum. It's lovely to see you here today, and uh, welcome, especially if this is your first time. It's a beautiful day outside. It's very hot, so you've done very well to choose this over perhaps what is out there. So thank you very much for, for joining us. You'd be very much helped, I think, to have your Bibles open on page 1050, 1050, and um, that's uh, the passage we'll be looking at. So please do keep that open, I'm sure be useful to sort of follow along with me. And also there's a slightly uh, luminous yellow handout that should give you an idea of where I'm going and keep you awake if you doze off by just by glaring at it, I'm sure. Shall I, shall I pray? Let's stir our heads. Father, we just sung that you would speak and that is our prayer, that you would speak. Lord, so often we, um, we want to be comforted, uh, so little we, we want to be challenged. But Father, I pray that you would warm our hearts, warm our hearts towards you, towards our great God and King, so much so that we would desire to live for you wholeheartedly. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across a newspaper article recently in the Independent newspaper. The headline was this, Talking about money is Britain's last taboo. And uh, the article reported on a study performed at University College London, and they surveyed 15,000 men and women on a wide range of topics, and they discovered that people are seven times more likely to tell a complete stranger intimate details about their personal lives than they are to talk about money. One researcher, Stephen Clifton, said this, Most people, once they've started an interview with us, us, will tell us anything. They feel so liberated. They're loving talking to a stranger about sex. They'll tell us about their affairs and how many partners they've had. They'll tell us all kinds of things. But the one thing they won't tell us is how much they earn. Well, we come now to a section of Luke's Gospel where Jesus starts talking a lot about money. And it wouldn't surprise me if for many of us, this just makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. You might see the sermon title is Radical Generosity. And and naturally, we hear something like that and our hackles go up. This isn't a sort of normal topic of conversation for us, is it? I wonder why we react this way. Well, in many respects, money is power, isn't it? Money is power. So if you have uh, money, you have the power to go up the road and order someone to cook you a meal and they can come and bring it to your table and then they'll take it away again and wash the plates up for you. It's called a restaurant. I thoroughly recommend them. Money is power. If you have money, you have the power to live in an area with very good schools and, and good transport links. Money is power. If you have money, you have the power to have someone fly you all the way to the French Alps to go ski over Easter. Money is power. And if you don't have money, you you don't have the power to go to the restaurant. You don't have the power to go uh, living in the nice fancy area. And you don't have the power to go skiing. So perhaps you're imagining in your mind how the next 20 minutes is already going to go. Maybe you're thinking it's going to go a little bit like this. First of all, the preacher is going to point out that by the world standards, we are very, very wealthy. We're very powerful. That's going to be the preacher's first step. Then he's going to make us feel thoroughly guilty about that fact. And he's going to sort of twist the thumbscrews and, and we'll, we'll be sort of feeling sort of slightly languishing and guilty about having this amount of power. 
And then thirdly, motivating us by guilt, the preacher will uh, force us to reluctantly and begrudgingly head over to the welcome desk, pick up a a flyer on giving and fill out a, a standing order form reluctantly. Maybe we're thinking that's how the next 20 or so minutes will go. Well, it might surprise you to discover that is not Jesus' method to burden us with guilt. His aim is not to force us to do what we do not want to do. No. Instead, his aim is to so fill up our hearts with the love for the Lord Jesus Christ that we desire to be generous and radically generous at that. Jesus isn't anti-power. He just wants us to direct our power, our money, towards what is right. You'll see from uh, your handouts how our passage is structured. Uh, To begin with, Jesus tells a story, so I just want you to to sit back and enjoy that to the first eight verses. It's a rather strange story, a rather amoral story. But then after that, he then tells us uh, three lines of application, which we might go home and think about. But let's dive in. Verse 1, chapter 16, on page 1050. Please open your Bibles if you've shut them. Page 1050. Verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, I'm sure you'll be familiar with the idea of a financial manager. If you go on the underground, particularly in the city, as you're going up the elevators, you see all these adverts on the side, don't you, for firms like Investec or St. James's Place. And the idea is that you, you, you give these guys responsibility for your money. You hand over your stocks and shares, and their job is to sort of buy and sell in order to accrue you wealth, that they make wise investments on your behalf. Well, it seems the rich man in our story, he he makes a rather poor choice of financial advisor. This manager, it seems in verse 1, is accused of wasting his master's possessions, literally squandering them, the same word which the younger son did, the sort of thing he did, squandering his wealth back in chapter 15. So we can imagine this manager, instead of uh, buying low and selling high, instead he's buying high and selling low. We can picture this guy making reckless investments, trading away his master's precious goods for the equivalent of magic beans. Hopeless, absolutely hopeless. He's found wasting money that is simply not his to waste. So what does the master do? Well, he does what any master would have done in his situation. Look at verse 2. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. We can imagine this hopeless manager being summoned into his master's office. And the master's there behind his big oak table and the manager's there sort of standing in silence as his, as his master sort of looks at all the forms and, and all, the, uh, all the graphs in front of him and seeing how his investments have nosedived since his manager's taken over. The manager's standing there in silence still, sort of cold sweat appearing on his brow. And eventually the master opens his voice, opens his mouth, and he says, you've been wasting my money, you've been doing dodgy dealings, and I have to fire you. The master gives the manager a period of notice, but then after that, he's gone. Now this is very, very bad news for the manager. Look at verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? 
My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. You need to know that back then, when you lost your job, you more than just lost your income. This manager, as a manager of the estate, he would have lived in his master's compound. So as soon as he lost his position, he would have also lost his home. He would have lost everything. There's no benefit system or anything like that to fall back on. So our hopeless manager, what does he do? He starts considering his options. He's saying, well, I could do a bit of manual labour. There's a guy up the road who's feeding pigs, a young guy, but it doesn't seem much fun. No, I won't do that. Or maybe I, I, can, I can beg, but, beg, but no, I'm not going to beg because that's just embarrassing. What if my friends see me? He's too used to his um, middle-class, white-collar existence. He isn't going to go back to something else. So what does he do? He has a cunning plan, a very cunning plan indeed. Look at verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Our dodgy manager, he knows that the game is already over with his old master, but maybe he can use his period of notice to find a new master. He's given time to hand in his account, so he's going to use that lag time to produce himself a new home. And what he does next is simply outrageous. Look at verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. We can picture them queuing up outside the manager's office, slightly nervous, worried that their massive debt is going to be demanded of them. Maybe, maybe they're rehearsing all their excuses about why they can't quite pay up just yet. But verse 5 again. He called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first... How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. Ouch. That is a big debt. You know at the back of your Bible, you have these sort of tables of measures and weights. No one ever looks at it, don't they? But if you follow that up, you you can sort of verify this later. This much oil would have cost 1,000 denarii, which I'm told is the equivalent of three years' wages of an average man. That's the sort of debt you don't easily climb out of. So verse 6 again. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. You can imagine the debt is elation. It's just like that. His debt is halved, cut in half, 50% off. He quickly, sort of, you can imagine, writing out the check as quickly as he could to make sure the manager doesn't change his mind. But before he scarpers off, we can picture the manager slipping his business card across the table. You won't forget this, will you, my friend? No, you won't. And off he runs, having made a good friend. Well, the next debtor then comes in in verse 7. He asks the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. Now, this debt is even bigger than the last one. Again, tables and measures. This would have cost around 3,000 denarii which is the equivalent of nine years' wages. Can you imagine nine years of your wages stacked up in debt over your head? And like that, the debt is cut 20% off. So again, the guy, he writes out his cheque as quickly as he could, but the manager reminds him, you won't forget this good deed, will you? You won't forget me, will you? And off he goes. Do you see what the manager's doing? He's following through with his plan there in verse 4. He's using his short period of notice to make friends for himself 
so that when he loses his job and his home, he might be welcomed into their homes and into their jobs. So the story now comes to an end with the master discovering what his manager has done. And it might shock us. We expect the guy to be furious, don't we? Furious, wasting even more of his money. But instead, look what happens in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. You can picture the master years later down at the golf club. There, he's there with his other rich buddies. Uh, he's there in the, the 19th hole. And they're, they're joking about some hopeless employees they might have had in the past. And, and the, the, the manager, he, he, the master, he recoint, recounts the story of this, this old manager he used to have who wasted his possessions, who gave ridiculous discounts to some of his customers, cost him a lot of money, who was thoroughly dishonest. But he couldn't help admire his shrewdness. He couldn't help admire the ballsiness of the guy. Why? Because in the short time he had available, he acted in order to prepare for his own future. He couldn't help admire him. And really, that's the point of Jesus' story. We must act now, in the time we have available, in order to prepare for the future. Act now for the future. And bizarrely, this rather amoral, godless man (laughs) has something to teach us. Jesus says, verse 8, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. There's something we can learn about this uh, from this story, amoral though it is. I've got three things for us. You see them there in your handout. The first one is this. We should use our money to make friends. Use money to make friends. Look at verse 9. This is Jesus' first application. Verse 9. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. A bit like the manager in in the story, our time is running out. Callum alluded to this earlier. The, The day when we meet God is slowly approaching. And on that day, our money is not going to be any use to us whatsoever. So the question is, how should we act now in the light of our future. Well, if you're new to Christian things, perhaps you're, you're looking in on them here tonight. Perhaps you might expect Jesus to go in this following direction. Maybe, maybe we're expecting him to say, you should use your money to make friends with God. Maybe we're expecting Jesus to say, use your money and be really generous to God to secure yourself an eternal home. Give your money to God so that you might be welcomed by him when you enter heaven. We might expect him to say that, but he doesn't say that. Friends, we we can't buy our way into heaven, no matter what the prosperity gospel preachers might tell us on TV. It's lies. You cannot buy your way to heaven. But we can use our short-term wealth to make friends with people around us. The manager in our story, what was his concern? His concern was to get himself a home to get himself secure. But as followers of Jesus, our concern is to get our unbelieving friends, is to get them a heavenly home and to get them eternally secure. That's our concern. 
So look again at verse 9. Here's the picture of a believer using his money, his power, to make himself friends, to create relationships, if you like, where the gospel might be spoken. In order that when he dies and then he enters heaven, there'll be this enormous welcome party for him as he enters through the gates from all the friends whom he's managed to lead to Christ. Some of you will have met my, my dad last week. He was here in the morning and, and he was speaking uh, in the evening. And he tells the story when he, he took a year off um, work. I think he was, he was, he'd just finished some of his surgical exams. And he had a year off and he worked for a, a church in London called St. Helens Bishopsgate. And uh, he was doing, I think it was the first student worker there. But at the end of that year, the, the, the rector there, a guy called Dick Lucas, he sat my dad down and said to him, Bernard, I'm not really sure that full-time Christian ministry is for you. Instead, go and be a surgeon in Hertfordshire, where there is no good gospel church. Buy a very, very big house and make very good use of it for the gospel. And that's exactly what he did. And growing up, I can't remember a single Sunday lunch when we didn't have random people round for lunch, friends, colleagues, neighbours. I can't think of a single Friday night, really, when we didn't have a host of people in our home at gathering around God's word. I can't think of a single term which went by when uh, my mum and dad didn't throw these big parties for their neighbours, for their colleagues, for his patients, and had speakers to come in and, and, and speak and share the gospel with them. He used his money, his power, his platform, if you like, to make friends. Well, what will motivate us? to do the same, to use our money, our position, our power to make gospel friends. Well, as you look at verse 9, you sort of think about it, surely it's the Lord Jesus Christ who really embodies this verse. Here is the author of creation. Here is the eternal son of God. All riches of his, all power belongs to him. And yet... He gave it all up. He gave up his home in heaven. He came down and he clothed his power with weakness. He lived and he died among us. Why? So that we might be friends with God. So that we might have an eternal home with him. My father is now 73 years old. He doesn't look it, does he? He looks quite good for his age, I think. Good Palmer genes. But um, one day his wealth will be of no value to him. And uh, on that day, on the day he enters glory, I cannot imagine how many friends there will be there to welcome him. And I think of how many people who might be there to welcome me, some of the people I might have um, had an influence in, in coming to Christ. A welcome party. Isn't that a wonderful picture? It's a strange verse, isn't it? Use your wealth, use the time you have left to make forever friends (laughs) in that sense. Use your money to make friends. Our second point is this. Be a faithful manager. Now, I don't think this next point is really going to make much sense to us unless we sort of stop and start thinking about what money is and where it comes from. Callum kindly began our service earlier by looking at Psalm 24. You know, those words are quite familiar, aren't they? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Just stop and meditate on those, on those simple words. The earth is the Lord's. Everything in it. That includes everything in your bank account. You think it's yours. It's actually God's. 
includes the clothes on your back. Actually, they belong to God. It includes your home and your car. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You see, just like the guy in our story, we are simply managers. We are stewards. We have these possessions, but they don't really belong to us. So how should we use them then? Should we be like the guy in the story, waste them, be a bit dodgy with them? Well, no, Jesus sort of caveats that, doesn't he, in verse 10. Follow with me, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've been, not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? See, Jesus, he won't let us shrug this teaching off as just something for the super wealthy. We might think, ah, oh, yeah, this, this stuff, it's, it's really just for the house owners. It's not really for people who rent like me. This is for people in the banking sector with the big bucks. This isn't for people in the, in the service sector. Well, we often dismiss passages like this, don't we? They're for someone else. Jesus won't let us wriggle off the hook. And no matter who we are, no matter what we have, we're called to be faithful with it. When I was uh, working with with students up in Durham, we we used to encourage them to to think about giving in their first term of their first year. Because we realised that if Christians learn to give self-sacrificially when they have very, very little... Well, then that, that pattern would then continue as their salaries increase, as they hit the city, as they get bonuses. They'll learn because that pattern has been ingrained in them to be self-sacrificial. But if, on the other hand, it's been observed that, that those who say they'll only give once they are wealthy, actually, very rarely do they end up giving very much at all. As their salaries increase, so does their lifestyle. And so does their size of their car and the specialness of their holidays and the size of their house. And very often they have other priorities, other needs, and they don't really ever learn to give. But by contrast, I remember, I remember one particular gift Sunday. We used to have this sort of annual Sunday where, where, where there will be an appeal, uh, again up in Durham. And I remember that the teenage boys in my youth group, they, they willingly brought in their allowance for that month. It's a puny amount. And yet they offered it. And I think of that same Sunday, there were some children who came along and they brought some of their favourite toys and they offered them because we partnered with an orphanage because they wanted to give. Well, what would make us joyfully want to give like that? What would cause us to, to desire to be faithful managers, faithful stewards? Well, again, it's got to be the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because surely above all, he is the steward, the manager, if you like, of all things. Everything, all creation has been entrusted to him. He was rich and yet for our sakes he became poor. So that we, through his poverty, might be rich to God. Followers of Jesus, we desire to be faithful managers, not as a payment back to Christ for what he's done not at all it is simply the overflow of our gratitude if you like it's the evidence that we have been entrusted true riches by God is that what we're, offered, we're willing to offer is what is most precious to us 
I'm aware as a church we don't really often talk about money. If this is your first time here, this is probably the first time you'll ever hear <laughs> talk about money here at St. John's. We don't often do about it because it's so easily misunderstood, isn't it? Uh, often people think we're sort of begging, we're asking, that's all we're interested in. Um, that's certainly not the case. But if this is something you've never really thought about before, can I, can I commend to you this, uh, this booklet at the back of church? It's called, it's called Giving. There's a few on there on the welcome desk at the back. And it sort of details some of the reasons why Christians give and also how we might practically do that. How we might faithfully steward what has been given to us by God. Um, how we might not waste our Lord's possessions which have been entrusted to us. Do do you get that? Look, there are a few there at the back. Our third and final point is this. Choose your master carefully. Verse 13, our final verse. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve both God and God. And money. The manager in our story had a bit of a conflict of interest, didn't he? He was giving away ridiculous discounts to all his new sort of friends, trying to make a, find a new master for himself. Uh, but he, he couldn't do that while staying under the employment of the old master. They're, they're mutually exclusive, aren't they? He can't serve both his old master and the new masters at the same time. It would be impossible. And so it is with us. We cannot serve both God and money. And there might be a surprise for us here. We might think that it's our money which serves us. That it's our money which empowers us to do various things. It gives us the power to go to the nice restaurant, to live in the nice area, to go on the nice holiday. It gives us power. But actually, how easily we end up serving money and we find ourselves under its power and that is why Jesus here personifies it gives it a capital M if you like as he's a slave master which desires control over us friends you need to know money is a cruel master it tells us that our status is is tied to our jobs It tells us that our significance is located in the amount of our paycheck. It tells us our security is found in how much savings we've got. And what do we do? We believe these lies. So we flog ourselves in service of this master and we end up neglecting our wives, our children, our church and our God. But then what happens if the worst thing happens? Imagine you lose your job and suddenly your status, where is it? Who are you? You're nothing. Imagine a recession hits and your savings take a nosedive. Where's your security? Well, it's gone. Imagine you fall ill. Perhaps you die. And then what have you got? You've got nothing. Money is a cruel master. It will buy you a bed, but it won't buy you sleep. It will buy you food, but it won't give you an appetite. It will buy you a house, but not a home. It will buy you amusements, but not happiness. It will buy you religion, but it won't give you salvation. It will get you a passport to everywhere, 
except heaven. Money is a cruel master. Steve Jobs is um, well, most renowned as one of the greatest innovators of our day, really one of the greatest businessmen also of our era. And you might know he, when he died what, about two years ago, about two or three years ago, and these were his last words, this very powerful man. It says this. At this time, lying on the hospital bed and remembering all of my life, I realised that all of the accolades and riches of which I was once so proud have become insignificant with my impending death. In the dark, when I look at the green lights of the equipment for artificial respiration and I feel the buzz of their mechanical sounds, I can feel the breath of, of my approaching death looming over me. Only now do I understand that once you accumulate enough money for the rest of your life, you have, no, you have to pursue objectives that are not related to wealth. It should be something more important. No. Stop pursuing wealth. It can only make a person into a twisted being like me. God has made us one way. We can feel the love in his heart for each of us. And not the illusions built by fame or money like I made in my life. I cannot take them with me. Money is a cruel master. Is that who you want to serve? Or do you want to serve a good and loving God? Because friends, our God is good. For those who love Christ... He freely gives us a status in his very own family. He he embraces us like sons. He gives us a status. He gives us a significance in his kingdom, which can never be thwarted. He gives each of us a purpose that is beyond ourselves, bigger than ourselves, something which can't be stopped. He gives us security in heaven, a home which cannot be lost, a home which is ours forever which doesn't go up and down depending on the stocks and shares. It is ours. God is a master. He is a master. That means serving him sometimes will be hard. But we do so with joy in our hearts and a smile on our faces. Jesus, he doesn't tell us to do what we do not want to do. Instead, he changes our hearts and he gives us a glimpse of what he's done for us on the cross. He gives us a glimpse of his father's character and he changes our desires. So friends, if you've seen what Christ has done for you, well, let it be the overflow. Be gracious, be generous, be friendly, be faithful. And if you fear that money has power over you, there is a simple way of getting it getting rid of him, and let's give it away. Friends, we have a better master than that. So let's serve our great God and King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our Father, that you embrace us as sons, despite our sin, despite our love for other things. Thank you that you're a redeemer, that you rescue us out of slavery and dominion to money, 
and sin. And you rescue us to be in your very own family, in your very own kingdom. Father, please fill us with a delight for what you've done for us and help us to respond in kind. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.